America. Who's the savior of the nation? Welcome, everybody, to the Dave's Daredevil podcast, Captain America Spectacular, celebrating 75 years of America's Sentinel of Liberty. I am, of course, J. David Weeder, and as always, you can call me Dave, and in this outing, I am not alone. No, this time, for such a special occasion, I reached out to a compadre, a companion, a compatriot, my good friend and Captain America fan, John M. Wilson. But you can call me Dave. Well, now we can't have two Daves. That gets too weird. But, but, like... Ant-Man, all of his ants are named Dave. Well, that's so, true. So it, it, it kind of works. It, it can work. And that way, if one of us dies, Dave has fallen, long live Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about nobody gets killed in the making of this podcast? I agree with this sentiment. I'm happy to be a part of it. Yes. <laughs> well, this time around, we're taking a break, of course, from Daredevil while the show is on hiatus, getting ready to come back in January. And given that December is the original publication date of Captain America Comics number one, John and I have been long gestating to do something special to commemorate 75 years of Captain America. And to that end, we came up with the concept of exploring Captain America's origin. And I mean exploring it. Because it's not enough to just look at Captain America Comics number one. That's an eight-page story, and sure, we'll be talking about that. But that's been added to, retconned, and expanded to the point of being a story in and of itself well beyond those eight pages. It's like a whole saga. In fact, we were wondering what to call this thing, and one of the things we thought about calling it was revisiting Operation Rebirth or exploring Operation Rebirth, because there is there is this now, this myth that has developed around Operation Rebirth because of all the, the revisits that the, the story has gotten over the years. Yeah, and not to mention the movie, when uh, the first Avenger, which kind of plays along with that and in a spectacular way. I had that on while I was doing some of my notes, and yeah, I kept watching, like, wow, they've got that, they got that, they got this, and yeah, that's just become a, a more spectacular movie, in my opinion having gone through this. And I think, I may be wrong, but I think this may be a record for the most number of comics ever read, researched, or reviewed for a podcast episode. For one single episode. Yeah. Oh my Buddha, there were so many comics. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was it was a struggle at times. This was a lot of off again, on again, just, it was a lot to wrap our minds around. But I think, I feel pretty confident that I finally got it in my sights. I got this guy, I know the origin I know the background, and, and I'm ready to really get down to it. And I think we were talking off air. We don't really have great stories on how Captain America came in. You know, we were just talking Captain America's been around forever for me. I remember the Red Brown movies, but there's nothing much there. He's just so ubiquitous that if you're not even a Marvel fan, if you're a comics fan, Captain America's just there. He sort of embodies Marvel superheroes in a way that I think Spider-Man, he's the poster child. But when you think of Marvel superheroes and the one guy who would lead the Marvel superheroes, it's Captain America. Yeah, bar none. And it was interesting with that perspective, because, again, you think of Captain America as the default leader, just the go-to guy. And if you read Secret Wars, if you read Infinity Gauntlet, the Marvel Universe feels that way as well. And, um, you know, going through this, I got a whole new perspective on Captain America. I got to know Steve Rogers. And I don't mean to make it sound like a religious conversion, but it was something where the character became three-dimensional in a way he wasn't before. And it's really great because, I mean, Captain America, for so much of his life and his history, he is Captain America before he's Steve Rogers. But if you go back to the origin, if you go back to the early days of the character, it's very much Steve Rogers' story. It's almost the end of Steve Rogers' story and how he goes about 
a life-altering experience to become a totally new person with a new mission and a new life. Yeah, it, it, very much so. Now, of course, Captain America starts with two people, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, the co-creators, the the initiators of this, the Siegel and Schuster of Captain America. Now, Joe Simon was born in Rochester, New York, October 1913. Um, right out of the gate, as a young man, he got a job at an art department of a newspaper, 18 years old. And he worked for several papers within the industry, but with the whole Hearst Pulitzer empire, a lot of those got shut down. Now, he was making good money, so he decides to roll the dice. He's like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to try to be a comic book artist. And lo and behold, it worked. He quickly got a job at Funny's Inc. doing a Western tale and then moved into Timely, which was the precursor to Marvel. Now, at the same time, Jacob Kurtzberg was born in 1917, so he's a bit younger. And he grew up in New York's Lower East Side. And I want to emphasize the Lower East Side because that's going to come up a few times. Um, that's a rough neighborhood. It's filled with immigrants. Um, lower, I mean, very poor, lower class neighborhood, which sounds terrible, but a poor neighborhood. We'll leave it at that. And, you know, he was a self-taught artist and a real scrappy guy by all accounts. And the reason is they would just fight all the time in that neighborhood. And one of the funniest tales I read in an interview was, you know, they would fight, start at the top of a building, fight their way down the, the fire escape. And the, conversely, there was like a code of honor because Kirby talked about how somebody might get knocked out and then the combatant would take him to the door, straighten him up a little. So when their mom found him, he wasn't all jacked out, you know, bloody. They at least made an attempt, you know. And, and of course, Kurtzberg would enter the comics field. We kind of know that story. He tried, <laughs> he tried going to school, but didn't like the rules and the discipline. And he kept trying on different names in order to, in his own words, sound more all-American. And he, of course, settled on Jack Kirby. And just just to clarify, that's because this is an age, you know, where um, racism and and uh, anti-Semitism. Yeah, anti-Semitism. Nowadays, when you think racism, you mainly think about skin tone. Mm -hmm. But 50, 75, 100 years ago, it was much more broad. People's prejudices were much more prolific. Back in the day. And being Jewish, nowadays being Jewish is hardly a thing in the States. I mean, and, and really it's because skin tone rarely is that that different. Mm -hmm. But in the 40s, being Jewish was a thing. And so it, it, it may, it does, it's not surprising that Jacob would want to try to blend in more mm -hmm. and make him seem like, to, to, to be frank and blunt, one of the white guys. Yeah. And that's, that was... That's that's a common tale within comics. Stanley Lieber, who said he changed his name because he was going to one day write the American novel. I'm dubious of that, but Stan Lee. Uh, Robert Kaniger, or wait, is that right? Robert Kahn, I'm sorry. Bob Kane, um, so on and so forth. A lot of your formative comic book artists, the creators, Jewish, and many of them used pen names in order to blend in. That in itself is is a pretty heady topic when you think about the time frame being the comics were for kids, that these were fun and vibrant and all that. And yet, right there on the page is a sad story in and of itself, a sort of telling notion of where America was at that time. In, in that vein, I think it's great that you have Joseph Simon mm -hmm. and Jacob Katzberg, two Jewish boys writing a story about a character who's going to punch Adolf Hitler right in the face. Hold that particular thought. <laughs> We're going to get to that. <laughs> well, of course, Kirby's out. Um, he's got work, but he's always looking for more work. Well-known workhorse, well-known workhorse and prolific. And he came across Simon Studios and was uh, immediately impressed with Simon because Simon wore a suit. 
And for Kirby, that was a mind blower. And the two worked together on a character called the Blue Bolt. And of course, went on to create Captain America. And how does an idea like Captain America come about? Well, I'm going to let Kirby himself tell you in this quick sound clip. Well, Captain America came from a discussion between Joe Simon and myself. And uh, we were in a period where we had to get a job. In New York, New York was run by mothers, as I say. And Joe and I met, and we became partners. Uh, I respected Joe because I'd never seen a guy from upstate New York or a guy who wore such great suits. <laughs> and uh, we became friends immediately, you know. So we discussed this idea about America. Uh, this was at a time when everybody was patriotic. Uh, there wasn't a day passed by that, uh, you know, we didn't get news from Europe in the newspapers. Hitler wasn't mentioned and uh, liberty wasn't mentioned, and America wasn't mentioned. I mean, everybody was patriotic. And it was ridiculous not to do Captain America, because there was an idea that would have been bought by everybody. So Joe and I did that. Our, our job was to sell comic books. And we did. And of course, this led to the December 20th release, or December 20th, 1940 release, I should say, of Captain America Comics number one, which bore a March 1941 cover date. Now, a lot of people are going to be celebrating this anniversary in March. We're ahead of the curve. We know our stuff. This thing was 64 pages. Now, eight of those, I believe, were prose. And this is a huge undertaking. And Simon was actually going to farm out several of the stories, but Kirby's like, no, I want to work on all of them. I want to work on all of them. And I think that says, again, a lot about Kirby, a lot about how this book came together, that he wanted to keep it, this is ours, which is kind of sad considering how Marvel treated him down the road. And you were mentioning the cover, familiar cover, epic scale, everybody knows this cover, Cap in a chevron-shaped shield uh, with that skull cap mask rather than the hood, is punching Hitler in the face as goose-stepping Nazis shoot at him. Now, one would think this is a pure piece of American zeitgeist. We're in the midst of a war. We are fighting the bad guys. And here we have an American symbol punching Hitler. However, consider this. Again, it's December 1940. And consider Mr. FDR's words. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. We're still a year away from Pearl Harbor. Yes, we are. We have not entered World War II yet. This was a hot-button topic, too. If you do research, the idea of America entering the war was as controversial as pretty much anything you would see in the headlines today. This is what people were arguing about at the office. You, you, you can even see it in the comics of the day, in the, the 1939, 1940, 1941 comics. A lot of, there's a lot of talk, especially whenever you have a plot revolving around some scientists coming up with some invention that they want to use for the war effort. He, usually the scientists say, I only wanted it in the case of fighting a defensive war. 
mm-hmm. because one of the political positions was America will only get involved in this conflict if we have to defend ourselves. And that was the policy. If it threatens America, then we get in. Otherwise, we try to stay objective. And of course, there were people who thought that our entry into the war was going to become inevitable. And of course, it did. But when you look at this cover, again, as John pointed out, these are two Jewish immigrants or children of immigrants, to be exact, painting a picture, a literal picture of American symbolism fighting the oppression of the Jewish people. Yeah, that's that's something where that argument was going to be enhanced tenfold. I mean, it's it's direct conflict with the oppressors in question. No subtlety. And that kind of dispels a certain notion about Captain America himself, if you think about the time frame. Most retcons say, okay, the war was going on, we need a super soldier, and that's why Captain America was invented. And as soon as he was in, you know, gone through Operation Rebirth, he was sent off to fight in the war. No. He was an onshore spy smasher and, well, if you want to be honest about it, a monster fighter. Right, in the comics of the day. And in, in the real world scenario, you, you did have Americans getting involved in the war, but they were training to go overseas and support the British initiative, mm-hmm. support the Allies against, you know, the invasion of France and, and, and the, uh, the German, uh, Blitzkrieg engine that was stomping across Europe. So it's not that there were no Americans fighting in the war. It's just they were only doing it in length with European forces. Yeah. So those were the kinds of war videos that Steve Rogers was sitting there watching. He wanted to get involved, and we're getting ahead of our story a little bit, but he wanted to get involved with the war, um, even though we as a country were not there yet. Yeah. And they, they modified that a bit for the movie. Yeah, and, and it worked in the movie. It, and, it really did work in the movie, because it's, it's, it really it simplifies the story a little bit. Yeah. Speaking of story, let me give you the breakdown of the first story in Captain America Comics number one, courtesy of the official index to the Marvel Universe, Captain America. If you are a podcaster with a specific character and they've made one of these, seek them out. They are a godsend. They are probably one of the most important tools you'll find, along with the Marvel Chronology Project. Although, getting a little ahead of myself again, Marvel Chronology Project and I have butted heads (laughs) on Captain America. (laughs) <laughs> well, chronologies can be subjective, which the complete Marvel reading order is also a great resource for, for chronology and appearances and, and stuff. But but yeah. And also um, home to Avengers Inspirations. Hey! hey. <laughs> never never miss a plug. Um, as mentioned, the this is case number one, Meet Captain America. It was only eight pages, and yet it's going to be the main focal point of, of this particular episode. Uh, written by, written and penciled by Joe Kirby and Jack, or pardon me, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Um, inks by Al Lederman. Uh, Sid Shores did inks, and some of these with Golden Age aren't well documented, but that's as close as they're able to get. And yeah, it looks like Sid Shores might have done the cover with Al Lederman on the inside. Correct, yeah. Um, so the story goes, after two officers report a rampant fifth columnist presence in the U.S. US Army, Franklin Roosevelt instructs FBI Director Grover huh, to take them to a top-secret installation. At a curio shop, they follow Agent X-13, make note of that, to a secret laboratory where Professor Reinstein... Note, inject Steve Rogers with a with his wonder serum, causing the young man to immediately develop peak human strength and ability. One of the officers revealing himself as a Nazi spy kills Reinstein and destroys the wonder serum vial. Steve beats the guy who flees and stumbles into a laboratory equipment or alternate options on that where wire, co- wire coils electrocute him as the serum's sole beneficiary. Steve becomes Captain America and over the next few months captures spies prevents a dam explosion, and performs other heroic feats. As Private Rogers, he is assigned to Camp Lehigh, and after camp, 
mas- pardon me, after camp mascot Bunky Barnes discovers Steve's secret identity, Cap allows him to become his crime-fighting partner, Bucky. Not much to that story. And, and of course, it was it was condensed so we can move on to the adventures that follow in that book. Pretty short, straightforward, and simple until years and years of continuity are added. Now, I do want to talk about the idea that the fifth column had invaded the U.S. and they're blowing up munitions plants. I did some research. There was, you know, a fifth column of Nazi sympathizers on the, on the U.S. shores. There were spies over here. They weren't doing sabotage. I can tell you that much. They were spying primarily on financial aspects. Um, so they're looking for signs of war. So if U.S. is considering going to war, you're going to see big movements in steel and, and munitions, things like that. And that's what most of the Nazi spies reportedly were doing. But they make sure they sure do make for great comic book story fodder. Yes, they do. Oh my gosh. Superman, Captain America, Human Torch and Submariner, Green Lantern, even the Flash. All of your costumed heroes from the 1940s are taking out fifth columnists. Yes, they are. <laughs> they, there are probably 75 thousand fifth columnists in the states during the 40s waiting to be punched by a costumed hero yes um couple of things that we're going to be exploring a well one thing's just a nitpick arthur grover j arthur grover a clear allegory to j edgar hoover yeah edgar hoover grover yeah yeah however professor professor reinstein professor einstein oh that's i'm gonna get to that because <laughs> that excites me but with j arthur grover the thing that bothers me is you have an allegory for a real person in you know in the public spotlight talking to a real person from the public spotlight in fdr you have the real president and granted he's not named but it's 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 pretty clear it's fdr talking to this allegory and i don't understand why that particular substitution occurred it always kind of stands out to me and i don't know why again it's a nitpick yeah it's interesting whenever they swap out personalities in comics because it is in congress why would you have an obvious president but a made-up um person and it's not like it's there's there's obviously not a policy because different comics do it differently. Mm-hmm. But but in this particular issue, this is what they went with. Um, but at the same time, the FBI is scary, so maybe not naming that person is a smart move. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, well, I like how in the scene they talk about Human Torch comics, but yeah. uh, we don't have to get that we don't have to get that uh, detailed with, with the story coverage. Oh man, no! I just wanted a quick you know quick look at it. Those were the things that stood out. Now. This is a condensed version of what's been expanded upon, and that's what we're going to be looking at is basically this particular time frame for Captain America, including the damn dirty lies about Bucky Barnes. Mm. Um, it struck me that Steve has this very inauspicious entrance to the story. He's just there. He's this, he's this guinea pig is what he is. We don't see how he got there. We don't know anything about him. We don't know why he's here. It's just he's here. The first shot we have of him, I think, is of him drinking the serum. Mm -hmm. That's it. So I went to the Marvel Chronology Project and started putting together the early life of Steve Rogers. How did we get here? Who is this guy? Um, We know in general tones, sickly kid, all of that. But I really was fascinated by this. And I think you're going to love this, John. We know Steve was born on the 4th of July. The year is a bit vague. So I put it at around 1922 originally, putting him at 18. He may be around 19. So it could be 1921. Um, and again, this is taking place in the winter of 1940, according to official index here. Um, so right around the time the comic would have actually been on stands. It's supposed to be in real time. His parents were Steve, or pardon me, his parents were Joseph and Sarah Rogers. Now these were Irish immigrants. 
and they lived in New York's Lower East Side, just like Kirby did. And I want to point this out, not Brooklyn. That's, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is great for the movie. Uh, Brooklyn has it a works. certain – Yeah, it has a visual style and you're dealing with a visual moving medium and it looked gorgeous. So, But it's more important to emphasize that because this neighborhood, again, it's full of immigrants, um, poor people just trying to find the American dream. And I, I love that aspect because his parents are immigrants. They are the personification of the American dream and in a lot of ways how the American dream can fail. But I think it really informed me on how Steve would view America as the land of opportunity, that everybody deserves a chance and a unique worldview as well. Because it was, I mean, it wasn't just Jewish immigrants. You had Asian, um, Italian, Irish, um, yeah, German. It was, uh, it was the melting pot is what it was. And, and America, with different views of ethnicity back at the time that you had, and the negative things that came out of that, you also had the positive view of a much higher awareness of all the different cultures that helped make up America. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the, the accepting person would be aware that there's a lot of different kinds of people here. And that's a really cool thing. Yeah. So you have, you have, you have Jewish immigrants or the sons of Jewish immigrants writing a story about the son of an, of Irish immigrants and they're, they're able to present a worldview or present a view of America, a nation view that, that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was probably one of the, and I know a lot of it's retcon, but I thought it was one of the most profound moments where I'm like, okay, this is how Steve sees the world. And you can use the term colorblind. I think he sees if, if, a, if America's a patchwork quilt, he sees the threads that hold it together. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot for Steve Rogers. Now thinking about the time that he was born, we're dealing with right after world war one which was the Roaring Twenties. We had a few, uh, just gigantic financial upswing. Um, it was a great period for Art Deco and jazz. And I point out jazz because along with the comic book, those are the two main art forms to be native to the U.S. rather than really adapted. And of course, the country would crash from its excess. And Steve was coming of age during that. So he would have been in 1929 on Black Tuesday. He would have been uh, eight or nine years old, yeah, nine so, or 10 years old. So he'd have some degree of awareness of it. So he would see, you know, he would see the, the dark side of the American dream when it fails, um, surrounded by diversity and seeing this crash again, it, it, it gives him, I think a more realistic view that, Hey, there's a great opportunity here, but there's an opportunity that's equal for failure. And looking at uh the more recent volume, volume seven of captain America by Rick Remender, which I'm not a fan of, but it had some nice bits we see Sarah was working in a garment factory. Uh, Steve's grandfather was there for a little bit to help with the family. Joseph died sometime between 1929 and 1930. Joseph was depicted as out of work a lot. That there was a he had trouble getting jobs because of his Irish ancestry, his immigrant status. So even before the crash, yeah, they were not well off. Exactly, they weren't doing well to begin with, and the crash just made it worse. Um, now, wasn't weren't there hints that his father was abusive in that story? Yes. And I, I'm, I'm dubious of that. It bothers me a little bit because I thought, and this is just critiquing an, an issue that we're not really talking about, but I thought it was a bit unnecessary, but it does build up Sarah's character and Sarah, it, it follows through with what's, what we would see from Sarah down the road. Um, she wasn't around all that long, but when she was there, she was a pillar. She basically worked herself to the bone. Not only did the garment factory, she would take in laundry. And, you know, she was just trying to put food on the table and Steve was not healthy. Um, I know he had asthma. I ne- they never identify exactly what it is that is ailing Steve. Um, I know he had spinal issues of some kind. 
Yeah, because you, you, you think about his weaknesses whenever he goes out to be, you know, a soldier. But think about all of the pressures and medical stresses that, that come along with a weak and sickly child who has legitimate chronic medical issues growing up. And now put that in the context of a poor Irish family, uh, a single parent Irish family for looks, you know, half of his childhood. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, this is a very difficult early life that Steve led. Very Dickinson. Very, very Dickinson. Very Dickinson. Yeah. Dickensian? Dickensian something. Something like that. And I think that is what helps make Cap, uh, just Steve as a character, relatable and timeless. That you, you kind of have these historical touch points from Dickinson to even, you know, certain degree of myth that, okay, I recognize this character. There's a certain template to this character. Um, this just happens to be set within an American context rather than a, a you know, 19th century England. Um, and of course, Steve being sickly, being, he was a sensitive child. He would, he liked to read. He liked to draw. He's very good at drawing. He probably would have been an artist had fate not intervened. Um, he kept those on the download because bullies were always after him and they were pretty relentless in some of the depictions, rocks, bottles. I mean, just beating him senseless. That was one of the things about Captain America, the drawing that, um, caught me off guard in one of the earliest Captain America stories I read outside of his title where I, I hadn't really read a whole lot of his history yet, but he was in a Marvel team up issue and Peter Parker runs into him while Steve Rogers is trying to get an art job mm-hmm. at, at, at jo- under Jonas's publishing you know, umbrella. And so the idea of Steve Rogers as a cartoonist, as an artist was something I'd never heard before. And it was really cool to see that in the movie. Yes. One scene where he's drawing a Captain America monkey. Right. And it, it fit that scene so well, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a done scene because it helped, you know, to, to portray an aspect of the story they were telling. So it's not like, Oh, he's an artist, blah, 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 blah. But they show that he's an artist in telling the story and it really, really worked. Yeah. Well, I want to point out during this time, Steve made friends with a kid named Arnie Roth, and these two would become really, really good friends. Um, Steve would go over and get, you know, eat with Arnie's parents who were, I wouldn't say well off, but they were stable. They had food where Steve was lucky to get, you know, cabbage or, you know, whatever they could scrounge together. And Steve, I just want to point out, was working as hard as he could. And this was before child labor laws, just trying to chip in. He even being sick, um, trying to go to school, he's trying to do his part to keep their household afloat. So he was working hard as well. So that gives him a great work ethic. Um, Arnie Roth would become a good friend. Um, at one point during one of his beatings, just as a side note that we're going to come to in just a moment, he's rescued by an older fellow named Davy Fortinov. Earmark that name for just a moment. And, you know, there's a scene where Captain America tells Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man number 537 during Civil War how he gained a perspective on America and his duty and how to do the right thing in the face of oppression. And a lot of people know this scene. It's the whole no you move scene. And it was drawn from Mark Twain's writing. It's an inspiring moment. I love the quote. And it's a quote from a piece entitled Glances at History Suppressed Date Ninth Century. It certainly fits. But the chances of a young 1930s era Steve coming coming across that are minute. And I hate to ruin a good scene, but, you know, not impossible, but it's extremely like unlikely. That didn't see wide public, uh, publication until 1972. And that's in a book called Mark Twain's Fables of Man. But you get that idea that, for me, I think it's better that Steve gets that idea of civic duty from his environment. You know, he's working, he's with hardworking people just trying to make ends meet. And it makes more sense that his environment would inform it rather than writing. And I know it's a beautiful piece, but I I don't know. I I think it's, it's written on the walls of the Lower East Side. 
Right. It's it's one of those things that Mark Twain predates Steve Rogers. Therefore, a Mark Twain quote should predate Steve Rogers. But this particular Mark Twain quote was not something that was in Tom Sawyer. It was not something that was in something that would have been widely available to, to read at the time. So the, the writer was probably thinking the right thoughts, just didn't maybe didn't quite have his research down or didn't expect us to use the Internet and, and find out why well, he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still love that scene in in, in in context. But sadly, Sarah did die. This is around 1934. She died from pneumonia. And, and she worked pretty much right up till she died. And there are scenes depicting her as saying, basically, she gave Steve money to get his medicine and for, for went her medicine. And again, another, Steve's all alone now, for one thing, and his mother did everything she could to protect him right up to the end. The worst depiction or the most moving depiction of this is in two places, Marvel's Project number four, and then Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number seven, where Steve's at her bedside and she just slowly passes away. And it, it again, it says a lot about Sarah that she worked to really give Steve an opportunity. Like I think she saw her opportunity pass by. She knew the game was up, but Steve, Steve had a chance. And it staggers to think about that. It's kind of like, you know, to do a comparison to another character we like, Superman. Jor-El and Laura gave up their chance at survival, but made sure Kal-El lived. It's that powerful. And Steve, of course, kept working, trying to keep himself afloat. He drifted away from Arnie, and this is kind of where we find Steve when Destiny finds him. And we're going to get into that in just a moment after we take a break. But first, you know, we have this Steve Rogers, this scrawny young man who enters the lab. And the, the lessons I learned is the American dream isn't easy. Steve's taking a lot of this away as well. The, the people he's surrounded with came with big dreams, and they didn't get the white picket fence version. But they had an opportunity to make their lives better. Um, hard work. That's going to be a big aspect. Just that opportunity, seeing that sacrifice. Steve's life, he didn't have much. He scraped by. But they worked for what they had, and they were proud of that. And, of course, bullies. Those people, those bad people are always going to be there preying on the weak, and there will always be those willing to stand up. There's going to be need to be those people. And I think that still resonates today. And, of course, the dream can fail. Those are the things I think Steve took with him as he kind of moved towards his, his destiny, whether or not he was aware of it. But that's kind of where Steve was. He was working for, he was doing some artist work in a tunnel, as we see in Captain America Sentinel Liberty number seven. But, you know, people still liked entertainment and Steve would take a trip to the movies and that's going to change his entire life. And we're going to get to that right after this podcast promo break. Okay. I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world. Mm-hmm. 
as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. So that's not the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. So now we move into the fall of 1940. We've seen Steve Rogers. We've seen him born and grow up in a pretty rough environment. Son of an Irish immigrant. And he's he's taking all of these life experiences and moving closer to adulthood. So we now enter a, a series, either an event or a series of events. I'm not entirely sure if, if it's just one serial that he watches or if it's a few newsreels that he watches that, that change, that really are going to change the direction of his life. I've always taken it as one. Um, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, but Steve sits down to watch a movie and sees the newsreel of what's happening on the other side of the pond, the German invasion. Um, Given our time frame, fall 1940, we would be looking around the Blitzkrieg of London, which is one of the more devastating imagery you'll see from, from a war in a metropolitan area. And he sees this and something clicks in Steve. And he just says, I got to do something. Now, just as a side note, he sees a man named Dominic Fortune, a little newsreel, sort of a never-do-well adventurer type Han Solo. They give him as Han Solo in the 1940s. And he just, something lights within him because he's sitting there just stewing in it. And it's irreversible. He can't shake that feeling. And it's it's been depicted in several different sources. One of the main things that, that's consistent is the movie that he goes to see, which is The Seahawk. That was an Errol Flynn movie that actually came out. It was first released in July of 1940. And looking at that movie, it didn't help the that burning sensation from the newsreel because it's about a Spanish king who wants to overtake England. So, <laughs> wow. Okay. The, the themes echo through that as well. So it probably helped him sit there and stew. And I think Steve Englehart in issue 176 nails it where Steve's just not really paying attention to the movie. He's thinking, well, they're suppressing the people of Germany and they're killing them. And it, it's definitely, I mean, Steve goes from, I would say, passive, just kind of content to, to do what he does to I've got to change everything I do. I have a focal point. I have a need to help this. It happens in a lot of people's lives where something happens to change your level of awareness of the world around you. Mm -hmm. And you see a need that you feel able to fulfill. And in my, in my own personal philosophy of the world, if there is a need in the world and you are able to fulfill it, and furthermore, you get gratification from doing what it takes to fill that need in my mind that that constitutes a moral obligation yes you you can do something you like doing that thing and the world needs you to do that thing 
well, gosh darn it, you really should go do that thing. And it could be minute. It could be small, but yeah, I, it, it, I agree. it can be a chosen profession. I mean, that that's that's a lot of behind of why I teach. It, it's because I I can. The world needs it, and I like it, so I do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I it's the power versus responsibility. You yeah. have the power to do something. You're responsible to do it and to invoke another Marvel character. <laughs> but it at the same time, something's going on in the background that Steve's not aware of that he's going to intersect with, and that is. There is a project happening with the U.S. government to create a quote-unquote super soldier, and that's called Project Rebirth. No, no, why- no, I'm sorry. <laughs> remember, we, we have not yet entered the war. Mm-mm. So the, the government is looking for the long term here. Maybe even gearing up to enter the war, they want to have a force in place. Yeah, and I, 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 I know a lot of the sentiment at that time was geared towards, well, if we don't go over there, they're going to come to us. Right. So one way or the other, this is going to become a threat. And yeah, that, that makes logical sense seeing how Germany is just rolling over pretty much everybody in Europe. And they're trying to develop that super soldier. Now, we're going to get into some of those details in a moment as far as the the who. But Dominic Fortune, who Steve saw in the newsreel, is one of the first people considered for a guinea pig on this project. Dominic Fortune's real name is Davy Fortunov. Comes from the same neighborhood as Steve. Has a Jewish background. And, and for those who don't know the character, he has his origins in the 1970s black and white magazine era of Marvel. Uh, he was the character they wanted to tell World War II adventure stories in a black and white magazine for, uh, comic format that allowed a little bit higher uh, reader audience type of content. Mm-hmm. So you would have occasional, you know, occasional profanity, occasional higher levels of violence, occasional lower levels of clothing. Um, and... That's where the character has his has his origins. If you're not familiar with him, but so this is this is a guy who grew up in the same area where Steve grew up, and he is now doing things that Steve wants to be doing. Mm-hmm. Except he goes in, he go, he passes all the physical tests. By all rights, they say, yeah, he's a he's a decent specimen, but they're shaky. They they question whether it's because he's a a Jewish immigrant or Jewish heritage, and they blow it off like, no, it's just his character. He's a gambler. He's a, you know, as I mentioned, I never do well. He's a scoundrel. But scoundrel. You, like sc- you like scoundrels. I, I do, but the American government was skittish, which rereading that story, and this was from Marvel Superheroes number three in 1990, by the way, these questions kind of stayed with me. And it, I mean, and we were talking off air. This is a pretty ballsy story when you think about it, to even question this, to put this in a comic book format, to question, okay, did somebody's Jewish heritage, and we talked a little bit about the origins of the comic creators changing that. Did that play into their decision not to let Dominic Fortune try to at least be a guinea pig? Because at this time, they're trying to create a fleet uh, of super soldiers. They're not thinking there's just going to be this one guy with a there, great mission. There, there might be a poster child, but there's not just one guy. Yeah. And so I, it kind of – it stunned me that somebody would actually ask that question. It's a pertinent question. But this is, you know, again, a comic book. And it's it was a short story in a comic book. Does um Does it feel to you like – some of them have this unspoken reason, i.e. his ethnicity, and so they're finding other reasons to use as the, the official version. That's exactly how it felt. That was what stayed with me, and it ended up making me feel bad for Dominic Fortune because, you know, he was already built for this. And he was, yeah, he was a little bit of a scoundrel, but he was a scoundrel with a heart of gold. Again, Han Solo, he would do what needed to be done. And there was even the idea somebody put on there that how ironic would it be to have the the American symbol be of Jewish descent against a force that's suppressing Jewish people. 
And I thought that and, and granted we end up with a blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, <laughs> symbol. And I thought that juxtaposition was fascinating. And it that's the one I kept coming back to, like, wow, that is that's pretty harsh for Dominic, but it says a lot about the mentality of the time that we were talking about early in the episode that, you know, now if you're Jewish, okay, no big deal. But then it was, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. Right. It was, it was a class, you know, in its, not even in itself. It was just lumped in with other, other prejudices. It was part of the same vein. And, uh, you know, who knows what could have been if Dominic Fortune had undergone this? Who knows what would have happened, how history would have been altered, and we'll never know. But then again, that's a question you can find out as we get further down the line here. Um, so as this is happening and Dominic is being declined, Steve is still burning with that desire and tries to enlist, but because of his health reasons, keeps getting rejected. Well, one depiction, there's two different depictions of what happens next. One, I kind of buy because it's the one that's consistent with almost every story with a, with a, about one caveat. The other, it's a cute story, but I don't completely buy it. And this is where I butt heads with the Marvel chronology project. Um, there was a story in the Captain America, Captain America comics 70th anniversary special. In which, at this rejection, Steve happens upon an American spy who's been stabbed, fatally stabbed. He has this gem, and he says, get it to the Timely Building. And Steve is chased by three German spies. Now, along most of this adventure, the spies get dispatched. Two out of three get dispatched, and then Steve makes it, and one spy lives, which is supposed to be Heinz Kruger, which will be an important character. The reason I disagree with this is multiple. One, Heinz Kruger, by all chronology, had not arrived on, on U.S. soil yet. Um, he will be arriving. We're going to be talking about him in just a few minutes. But yeah, the, the, the Marvels Project actually has him arriving almost the night before the event. Uh, short time before, yeah. There's weeks before that. It was, it, but Steve was already in another phase of this. Um, they'd already locked Steve up, uh, locked him in for the position. Um, secondly, the fact that this is a gem that's supposed to have the formula written on it in spider silk, I don't buy. Uh, Erskine, or pardon me, Reinstein didn't write this formula down. Reinstein, the doctor who's going to, this is supposed to be the super soldier formula that's on it. Reinstein never wrote it down, which is key. He says that many times. Yes. It's, it's, it's basically pounded into your head. So I disagree with that. The more likely realistic thing that's consistent through almost all depictions is Steve is, you know, leaving the enlistment, dejected, and he's approached by General Chester Phillips and says, Hey, you want to serve your country? I got, I got an opportunity. And again, that's, Consistent across the board, the only caveat I'll make to that is a series called The Adventures of Captain America, which the Marvel's Chronology Project, it doesn't take into account. And I kind of, I see why most of it isn't, because it doesn't, it doesn't upset the apple cart, but it doesn't really jive, except for two aspects that we're going to get to. And one of those aspects is Miss Cynthia Glass, who we're going to talk about again in just a moment, but she was Chester, uh, she's Lieutenant, she's Chester Phillips' aide of some sort, and she is sort of if if you're making the movie analogy, she's Peggy Peggy Carter's analog. Although Peggy Carter was not present, can we emphasize that again? Peggy Carter is not present at any of these events. You know, now that's that's something that's a little bit conflicted because of the depictions of the actual origin scene. You know, the key rebirth scene because you have Agent X thirteen in the original Captain America comics version. Mm-hmm. Then that is rewritten as Agent 13 whenever it's first retold in the Silver Age. And then that's later rewritten that Agent 13 was a name taken both by Sharon and Peggy Carter, which would have made that woman Peggy Carter. 
Well, I think that kind of that's how I got my head around is they both had that rank. It's kind of like 007. There's a theory that James Bond 007 is a rank. It's a title, not the person's true identity. So I I buy into the Cynthia Glass because it was made canon in Steve Rogers' Super Soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of Adventures of Captain America, it's a great read. It's by Fabian Nietzsche and uh, Kevin McGuire is doing art. Beautiful book. Really fun read. Uh, the only two things I took from that are Cynthia Glass because it, it filled in the gap here in the Captain America comic story of who this lady is. It identifies her as Cynthia Glass, and she does something very important at Project Rebirth. And it kind of filled in a gap where I'm like, I can buy this. I can buy why Peggy would have that rank and why later Sharon would have that rank. It also gets blended in with Betty Ross, because is is Betty Ross pay, uh, the same Agent X-13? Because that's been, that's been played with at different times yeah. in the chronology, too. It's been played with, but if you're... And, and we got, I think we got to talk about uh, chronology and, and continuity with Captain America because you're dealing with two separate continuities. You have the timely continuity of the original books, pre-Marvel, and then you have the Marvel continuity, everything post-Stan Lee, post-Fantastic Four, when St- uh, Captain America was brought back, and then things were retconned from there. You kind of, if you're going to approach Captain America in any sort of studious way, you need to accept that there are two. They intersect at, at points. They have some overlap. The, yeah, have some overlap, but Roy Thomas himself kind of addressed that, and you're the one that brought that to my attention. Yeah, because in um, in whenever Roy Thomas started up his Invaders series, his plan was to interact occasionally with stories from the timely era. Uh, he 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 was a he grew up in that era. He read a lot of those stories. He was a big fan of those comics, and so he wanted to use some of those characters in his series. Now, whether or not he actually did that a whole lot is, is still unknown to me because I'm only about 15, 20 issues into that run. But, um, but he said in one of the, the text pieces that were so common in seventies comics that they're not going to say a blanket statement that everything in the old comics is part of the invaders story. But when they need one, when they want to use one, they will reference it. And that story can be considered part of the invaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this sort of pre-crisis, post-crisis DC idea where the post-crisis DC characters have their own history. But sure enough, a lot of it really is very similar or identical to parts of pre-crisis history. It's just you can't paint all of Captain America's timely publications with one brush. And I don't know that you would want to. Because those are of a time. That's that's a way to put it. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Especially if you start following Bucky's Adventures and Young Allies. Oh, damn. <laughs> Holy gosh. Those are of a time. Yes. <laughs> um, the reason I bring that up is the Betty Ross thing didn't work for me. Because within the same issue, Captain America Comics number one, the second story, which also introduces the, introduces the Red Skull, or a Red Skull, I should say. They meet Betty Ross for the... Oh, no, it's the... It's the second story is where they have the people who are, quote unquote, predicting disasters that are happening. Right. Sando and Omar. Yeah. And they meet Betty Ross for the first time or Betsy Ross or however you want to pronounce it. It's all it's all apparently all canon somehow. Um, so I never bought Betty Ross, Peggy Carter to kind of pull back the curtain on that. Steve and Peggy Carter met once down the road during the war on the war front. Um, and then they were separated and Steve never forgot her. Didn't know her name until way down the line. Right. And that story is too important to the overall tapestry that's going to be built from the Man Out of Time era forward, even into Grunewald's era, uh, De- De Mateus's era. So 
that's why I never bought that. And Sharon, by continuity standards, wasn't even born. <laughs> so to really the only way to make it all work is to probably take that Agent 13 reference in the early Silver Age as an error. Um, or as, you know, just as a, as a rank. That, but that, that does was, not that, directly relate to Peggy or Sharon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a rank, and, and Peggy at one point took over that rank. Um, who knows what could have happened to the, the person at this time? And Sharon, of course, inherited that, so on and so forth. That's, again, this is where Marvel Chronology and I kind of butted heads. And, you know, as far as trusted resources, always be careful where you're going. Wikipedia is a great starting point to get ideas on where to go. Do not rely on Wikipedia if you're doing anything studious. I remember back in the day, we had to go to the library and read books. Even yes. those can be. Well, yeah, even those, yeah. It all depends on who's doing the research. And 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 despite the fact that we occasionally disagree with a, pro a site like the Chronology Project, it's it's a vastly helpful resource. Yes, and you always occasionally have. occasionally has tweakable parts. Well, you always have. And fans, let me say this. You always have one card you can pull, and that is headcanon. At yeah. some point, you just sometimes have to accept, okay, I don't believe this. I buy this. This is how I want it to happen. Here's the proof I have. You're not hurting anybody. If it enhances your reading enjoyment, run with that. Right. Because this is all about having fun, even when you're tearing things apart and exploring them. Um, but I buy the Cynthia Glass for the simple reason of the way Cynthia Glass's story play, plays out or certain details, maybe not the background, but the the eventual ending fits in better. As far as just the ma basic beats of that story. And it makes sense for Steve's character as well. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm going to get to that. But there's an infatuation between them. So all the Peggy Carter stuff you saw in the movie comes from Adventures of Captain America. or the, With the character of Cynthia Glass. Yeah. Uh, and Captain America really did do a lot of amalgamations. For example, the Bucky in that movie is a combination of Arnie Roth and Bucky Barnes. Because Arnie Roth, Steve's childhood friend was somebody who stuck up for Steve, who watched out for him, much like you see Bucky doing in that. Um, there's a scene in the movie that really is reminiscent of a scene we're going to get to with Arnie Roth. And we're going to talk more about Arnie in just a minute because Arnie's a really interesting character. Very interesting. <laughs> um, but to get back to Steve's story, so Steve's approached, here's an opportunity. We're going to try to get you a way to serve your country. Steve is taken to a familiar curio shop where he meets Dr. Reinstein, who we met in the origin there. Steve immediately says, nope, that's an alias. I know who you are. He is Abraham Erskine. Now, we mentioned Reinstein being an Einstein allegory. And the reason I find that fitting is his story, Einstein's story, fits what Erskine did. Uh, there's a defection. Now, for Einstein, he came over. One of the things he did was inspire the government to start the Manhattan Project. Because he said, you know, the Germans are somewhat exploring nuclear options. You don't want these guys getting ahead of you in that race. If they do that, the war is gone. Everybody is screwed. And did a big report on this. And the government said, yeah, he's probably right. And of course, that began a progression to the atom bomb. Where Whatever you feel on that, that's fine. But that's kind of the mentality that Einstein came to the table with is, yeah, don't let them get ahead of you in that race. There's also a physical appearance that's similar, depending on how they're coloring uh, Einstein's hair in that particular comic. Because many times they color it white. Yes. And we have the white hair and the big bushy white mustache. He looks like Einstein. Yes. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a bit stout for Einstein, but he still looks like Einstein. Interestingly enough, in the Marvel's project, um, whenever Erskine's defecting, Nick Fury actually leads a mission to go and help him get out of Germany. Yeah, and I want to talk a bit about that. Um, Reinstein or Erskine, 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 he was working for the Nazis in their own sort of version 
of the Super Soldiers project. Uh, but the way they were doing it was they were going out, depth charging the area where Atlantis is, like their crocodile Dundee fishing, and they would take these corpses back and they were experimenting with Atlantean corpses. And that's kind of where Reinstein, or pardon me, where Erskine, wherever you want to call him, started getting doubts, where he's like, I don't know this is the path I want to be on. And of course, the SS is being kind of driven forward from the Marvels Project, which, by the way, is a five-issue miniseries by Ed Brubaker. If you're in any way interested in the Golden Age of Marvel... Check that out. I think, love I that. I think love it's that eight. story. Is it eight? It's it may eight. be. I think you're right. But it's, it, yeah, it, it ties it ties everything together in a way that I've never seen before. Beautifully too. The, um, art, the but, art's amazing. Yeah. So in in February 1940, so we're earlier in the same year. Erskine defects. He tells them where the lab is, where they were doing the research. It's bombed, gone, lost. So the Nazis are pissed at Erskine. Not only did he ruin all of their research and piss off the Fuhrer, he's now working for the Americans. Probably taking some of that knowledge and applying it to that. And that's kind of what I want to get to. Um, now, the Nazis are in bed, and I want to mention this now because it's going to come up in a moment. Uh, there is a spy named uh, Major Albert Kerfoot who's embedded in a robotics project as Professor Hamilton. He's going to come up again, but this is happening simultaneously. Kerfoot gets note that, hey, we want Erskine dead. He's over there. Find him. We'll take care of the rest. But what bothers me is when I got to thinking about this, if Erskine was working on Atlanteans for the Nazis, getting some of their physical makeup, what makes them stronger, faster, etc., do you think that some of the Atlantean biology is involved in the super soldier serum? Oh. I'd never thought about it. We've never had any sort of – it's always been the serum is the serum, and it just works. Right. There's but, only but, one. But it had to come from somewhere, right? I mean, it's not yeah. just you know table salt and, and gingerbread mixed together. It's, it's something. No. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's an idea. I like that. Um, I'm kind of glad, you know what, you know what, you know what, I'll say this. I like the idea of it being there and yet never really needing to be a story point. There's True, no yeah. like Captain America is joined to the Atlantean history. And so he and Namor have a kinship in the story because that doesn't need to happen. But, um, but the idea would- that Erskine would have used some of that in his development, mm-hmm. I do like. Yeah, I don't know if I was Cap. If I was Cap and I knew about that aspect, I think I would not mention that to Namor because in the Marvel's project, he takes good vengeance on the Nazis that are depth charging Atlantis. Yeah, and the idea of anything Atlantean being the source of an experiment would not go well with him. No. Um, so Steve is, Steve's met Erskine, um, who's this defector who's working on this. Um, the Nazis are after him. Now comes a certain period that's patchy. Um, the only place I found that really expanded upon this was Adventures of Captain America. And it's one of the p- two pieces that jive was Cynthia Glass's basic story and the section where Steve undergoes some testing under the watchful eye of Colonel James Fletcher in Washington, D.C. They're in this brownstone. There are other candidates. Um, of course, we have Steve. We have Harmon Ferments, who is this super genius. Graduated college at 15. Uh, Jack Windmere, this all-American athlete who's African-American. And I only mention that because it's going to come up in just a moment. And then we have Gilmore Goose Hodge, who's just an absolute racist piece of trash. Right. Just a, just a worst human being you could meet. Um, they're all put into all these tests. Steve is, of course, this is kind of played out how the movie did, where Steve is struggling to keep up and even mentioned Hodge in the movie, which kind of made me smile. There was also Walter Rosen who got rejected for hemophilia. Well, that, that was Harmon Ferments, wasn't it? Ferments uh, was the hemophiliac. I got Walter Rosen from New Warriors 4, but I could be wrong. Uh, Harmon Fermitz was Walter Rosen. 
Okay. So Ryan Stein is Erskine. Um. <laughs> no, Harmon, Harmon, yes, he was kicked out right at the beginning because he's hemophilic and they're thinking, well, what's this serum going to do to him? And that's kind of a question I wish they had tried to answer. What could that do? Because let's say it doesn't make him a super soldier, but it cures hemophilia. You have potential medical treatment with an aspect or aspects of the super soldier serum. And, and yeah, if you're going to rege- hmm. Hemophilia is a blood disease, right? Yes, it makes the blood thin. So if he gets cut, he's, I mean, it's just thin. It just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds. Because I was thinking, you know, you're already doing this with Steve Rogers, who is, you know, 75 different kinds of weak and debilitated. But I don't think that blood sickness is on his on his list of problems. And perhaps they thought about the notion, well, we're doing all this stuff. The body has to be able to accept our treatment. Yeah. And build up the system. That means he's got to have functioning blood. True. Maybe that, I, I'm making up crap because I'm not a medical person, but that that seems like a possible logic flow to me. Yeah, and her infirmates would come back, and as you mentioned, in New Warriors with psionics. Um, New Warriors—that's a whole other topic. But that appearance to me makes this canon because he left. He didn't know. They don't know what type of project they're going into. By the way, they know they have an opportunity. They don't know what's about to happen. They're there to to serve or, in Gilmore Hodge's case, try to become some sort of superior. They don't know what a super soldier is. And the fact stage. that he spent time before the actual, you know, rebirth uh, event, the fact that he spent time with them doing training and stuff, that was something I had not realized before, uh, before reading up on stuff. And it's shown in the movie as going to Lehigh and actually mm-hmm. doing army training. But the comics do it a very, very different take on it. They're, they're living in this mansion basically behind closed shutters and no one knows that they're there. They, they, they want to keep the German spies unaware yeah. of this place's existence. And so ferments disqualified pretty early. So it comes in, <laughs> there's a misunderstanding by the wonderful Gilmore Hodge when ferments tries to tell him I'm hemophiliac, he hears homosexual. And decides to take umbrage and stars basically starts a fight. In this fight, Jack Windmere, again, all American, happens to be African American, Hodge is racist. Jack Windmere gets injured badly. His leg, his cartilage is ruined, disqualifying him. So it does come down between Steve and Hodge, which, of course, pretty, pretty clear choice just by mentality. Now, was Hodge, was that the name given to the, the total jerk in the movie? Yes. Ah. So we have an analog there. Okay, cool. Yep. The more the more I read into this, the more I appreciated the first Avenger. Some of the details they made were were phenomenal, and they weren't the necessary type of details. They're not the not, link at the camera. Yeah, not time. even a little bit necessary, but it just shows how much research those guys did for that film. Yeah, and it showed on the screen too. Because again, I was watching well, that movie while doing some of these notes, and it just synced up where I'm like, "Wow, well played, well played." That's why. <laughs> the- that's why so why it's my second favorite Marvel movie right yeah. behind Winter Soldier. <laughs> the more you know about Captain America's story, the more you realize that they knew about Captain America's story. Yeah. So Steve is chosen. He wins out and they test him more and more and more. Just pushing him, trying to trying to get as much, how, how far, how much mileage we're going to get out of this guy and just trying to build him up a little bit. Because as we're going to find out in just a moment, the test is not, it's not safe. <laughs> this isn't just a, a simple test. This is dangerous. Um, but there's a another adventure with Dominic Fortune where Steve is getting ready to go to a safe house to prepare to enter the curio shop. And Dominic Fortune helps save Steve from a bunch of Nazi spies, bringing that full circle. And I love, love that idea that this guy who was rejected 
comes back in and becomes key to making sure Steve arrives where he needs to be. That is pretty great. Yeah. Now, mentioning uh, the danger of this, as Steve is getting tested, we have a General, uh, General Maxfield Saunders who's getting impatient with this. Like, we need a super soldier now. He decides to test the formula. It's an unfinished formula. And there are going to be multiple steps in this formula that are added throughout the years that kind of end up being retconned into one full cycle. He injects Clinton McIntyre with this. And by all rights, I didn't see McIntyre as a bad guy, but the formula being incomplete, basically this guy lost his mind. He hulked out and starts, you know, killing people, throwing things and ends up on the ground himself. They thought he had died. He comes back later as the villain protocide, but that just shows how dangerous this is. This is completely untested. This isn't a an inoculation. This isn't a simple routine experiment. This could have very real consequences in, in a big scale. Say they chose Hodge. That's another good, you know, this guy would have strength. He would have determination and he would not be mentally prepared for what he his job would eventually be. Now, of course, at this time, again, they're thinking we're going to have an army of these guys. This is going to be not standard issue, but... This is going to be a thing. We're going to have fleets of super soldiers. Okay, I, I, I have to put in something here, and this is a little bit of levity here, but um, this totally reminds me of a bit that Bill Cosby did back in the 80s when he did a stand-up routine that's on video as Bill Cosby himself. And um, <laughs> he's talking about drugs and and asking people what is so great about drugs. And, and he talked to this one guy about cocaine, you know, what is it about cocaine that makes it so amazing? And the guy says, well, it intensifies your personality. And what Bokar, if you're an asshole? Yeah, what if you're an asshole? <laughs> well, and that was addressed in the movie, and I thought it was done probably in one of the best bits of dialogue. Stanley Tucci as, as Erskine, which was one of, the, one of the brilliant pieces of casting in that movie, along with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and, of course, Chris Evans. That goes without saying. But Erskine says, you know, it magnifies what's already there. So good becomes great, bad becomes worse. Mm. And in the movie, they tie the super soldier serum into the Red Skull, which, no, doesn't happen in the comics per se. Uh, but that was that was a really good example of how that could have gone bad. Skull lost his mind, physically deformed. Um, by all rights, Steve could have ended up with two heads. Who knows? Or six what arms. The, six Parker. arms, yeah. <laughs> There's any number of ways this could have gone. And I, I don't know how much... Steve was made aware of, of how dangerous this is. I mean, he had to have been at least somewhat aware. Yeah, I, I get the impression that the they were not trying to pull the wool over the eyes of their candidates, that they were taking willing volunteers for, yes, it's a risky process. You might die. Are you willing to take that chance? Might die or worse. Might die or worse. You might go on living in a in a freakish situation. So I would like to think that Steve Rogers went into this with an open eye. I, I believe that fully, and it makes sense to Steve's character that this is his lone opportunity to make good on his destiny because he still feels I've got to do the right thing. I have to stand up to these villains. That's his sole motivation. He's not out to make money. He's not out to to glorify himself. He wants to stop the bad guys. He wants to stop the bullies. And that's that altruism is one of the key elements of what makes Captain America that guy you look to for an example. We need a leader. This guy knows how to fight bad guys. He's selfless in that respect. That's why that's one of the big aspects why the Avengers turn to him. As soon as he lands in the Avengers down the road, they look to him as a leader. And it's 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 a thing that 
when you lose sight of that aspect of Captain America's personality, of that humble nobility, I think you lose sight of what Captain America actually is and you have a different character. Yes. And the more I've learned about Captain America, the less like I have for the ultimate rendition. I agreed. Wholeheartedly agreed. Because I, I, you know, three years ago, I rather liked Ultimate Captain America. He was a bit of a dick, but, you know, hey, that happens. But the more I've realized of what makes Captain America Captain America, the more I've realized that that's just not it. Well, there's a really good scene in Mark Wade's run, and I forget the issue. or It's, a, it's, a, it's actually an ongoing subplot, but Steve has a brownstone where he's living. He comes home, and there are Mexican-Americans, uh, Mexican-immigrants who are squatting. He doesn't kick them out. He says, you can stay here. I'm going to help you because you deserve what everybody deserves. And that's an opportunity. And that scene to me, I'm sitting in because, you know, one of my habits is eating tacos at Taco Bell and reading Captain America comics. Long story. But uh, I'm sitting in Taco Bell and I just do this fist pump. Like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Steve has no sense of, I don't, I don't think it's correct to say he has no sense of self. Steve is, he, yes, he, he doesn't sense himself as an individual or even as a symbol as Captain America. He sees himself as this greater tapestry, just a cog in the wheel. He might be a bigger cog, sure, but that's how Steve sees himself in his role. We're here to do this. We're here to serve this ideal. And that's one of the biggest, as you mentioned, it's, it's what separates him from the ultimate Captain America, where the ultimate Captain America more and more feels satirical, insulting right. even. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> when it, in, sometimes in Captain America's history, he has felt that America has lost sight of what it means to be American. And that's mm-hmm. led to some interesting changes in what he does as 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 a as a hero and, and a crime fighter. But um, but yeah, he is very aware of what he wants to be, which is not himself, but a cause. A cause, yes. And yeah, that's why I believe Steve went into this completely aware this could backfire, but it's a sole opportunity. And that's a word that I think that's the biggest word I can associate with Steve and his view. Everybody deserves a chance. And, you know, that's, I think that's why a lot of people have issues with Captain America. They like the star spangly part of it. But when you get down to the ideal, it's kind of like Superman. And he's been compared to Marvel's Superman or Marvel's Batman. I lean towards Superman because of the altruism they share. And there was a cracked article saying, if you don't like Superman, you don't like yourself because he's representing this ideal. And I think that applies to Captain America in equal measure because he is... He's not, he's conflicted at, at, at the right points, but he's not conflicted about things that Batman would be. Right. He's not on a, on a course for vengeance. He's on a course to keep a country, an ideal, an idea on the right path. And that's. And that, that, that gets expressed through the tropes of superhero comic storytelling, constantly mm-hmm. fighting supervillains and such. But that's, sometimes that's almost in the way of being what Captain America is. But you've seen down the road, this backfires too. If you go into the Starenko bits, um, even some of the Steve Englehart stuff, he starts questioning, who am I? Who's the person within Captain America? And it's years down the road. So right now he's not giving a second thought to that. But down the road, it's going to come back and say, well, you know, I've never really been Steve Rogers. I don't know who Steve Rogers is now. Which is a great way to take an adult, a 20-something, maybe 30-something adult, having to reconcile with his... Very significant life altering decisions of an 18 year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something we all go through it. I yeah. Think at one it's point. a very yeah. human, very human thing to do with the character. So that's bringing us to winter 1940. We're right on the cusp of Operation Rebirth. What we're going to do is take a quick podcast promo break 
and we're going to come back and see the event itself plus the aftermath. Starting in December 2015, a new epic mega series. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality proudly presents Batman v Superman, a 13 part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. John M. Wilson and Magnus shine a spotlight on a crapload of Batman comics and a crapload of Superman comics. All this preparation for the theatrical release of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And once that's all over, we'll take a five hour long look back at 2013's Man of Steel. Finally, we will come together again to discuss our thoughts on the Batman v Superman film. So join Magnus and John as they recount the adventures of Batman and Superman in comics. All is preparation for Batman and Superman's first adventure in live-action feature film. The adventure begins in December 2015. Batman v Superman. Only at twotruefreaks.com Batman vs. Superman, a 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com So if you're listening to this podcast on the date of its release or soon after, then you are in the winter of 2015. 75 years ago, in the winter of 1940, a German spy arrived on the shores of the United States of America. And his name was Hans Kruger, Heinz Kruger, excuse me. And this is a character who, on the surface, serves one function. But there, there's more to him than that. And one of the things I liked about the Marvel's project is just what it did to humanize this character. But, but tell us something about Heinz Kruger, Dave. Well, Heinz shows up now in, in the original story and pretty much for most of his existence, his, his sole claim to fame was he's the guy that kills Erskine. He shows up at the, at the day event and shoots him. Here we have him getting to shore. And he's got this very well thought out identity as Fred Clemson, also mentioned in the movie. And it's a, some sort of army official. They never really designate exactly what he does. Um, but his goal is, of course, to assassinate Erskine, to stop this from happening. And he's very hesitant because um, I keep wanting to say Reinstein. Erskine is never alone. So basically, if he takes his move, he's going to get killed. He's going to get captured. What Something's going to happen where he's going to be in the, in, in the crosshairs. Yeah. And the scenes that happen, you can tell his hesitation, but he's told, no, if it's a suicide mission, you got to do it. And he slowly begins to realize in Marvel's project that I'm not going home to the fatherland. And he writes a letter to his wife and kids saying, you know, I'm, I'm dying in service to my country and you're probably never going to see me again. And it was the first time I looked at Heinz Kruger as anything other than just that guy. Right. So, so he <laughs> humanizing the enemy is something that sometimes goes down well. And sometimes it doesn't depending on what the story is and how it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I like this. I like that, you know, 
the person who, in a very evil way, jumpstarts Captain America's career is not just a man with a gun. No. He's a guy, there's a wife out there, there's kids that he loves. Um, it's kind of like finding things about Hitler down the road. You don't want to have any sort of human idea of Hitler. And yet people tell you, well, he loved dogs. He cried when they died. Really? I don't want to think of Hitler as a human being because look what he did. And yet you sometimes have to accept that people in history, even the bad people, they had aspects of themselves that were not unsimilar to you and I. Right. Which is, it's a very humanist way of viewing the world. It's, it's one that, one that appeals to me a lot. Just remembering that the people you don't like are a lot more similar to you than you want to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's embedded, um, and it comes to the day of the test. And they, the Nazis really didn't want the test to proceed, but thanks to his hesitation, here we are at the main event where our original story started. So what, just um, to clarify what you said, he was supposed to have killed Reinstein or Erskine or, you know, Einstein before the big day. As soon as possible, yes. As soon as possible. They don't, they don't want this thing progressing because they're already freaked out because the human torch is out there and Namor is out there and they don't need some stars and stripes symbol of the U.S. to interfere with their eventual plans. But he has not been able to find a good moment. Mm-mm. And so now he's, he's, he's probably sweating a few bullets on the big day because he's probably trying to find a way to get this done before the switch is pulled. Yeah. And there's not one. I mean, we're dealing, as you see in the curio shop, you have Jay Grover, J. Arthur Grover. You have many high-ranking army officials, uh, General Chester Phillips, who's going to be important to Steve down the road. Um, they're surrounded. I mean, there's, if he takes his shot, he's done. And I, I know of myself, if, if, if my Joel, my goal was to do something that's going to end up ending my life, I would be a bit hesitant. I mean, especially if it's something like this, where it's something within my control, I could walk away. And that's the thing is Kruger had that chance. He At any time he could just go, hey, guys, look, I'm a Nazi. Do what you need, but I need protection. Can you imagine the spy secrets that could have been broken if he had just turned? Mm. It could have it could have been just as powerful as Captain America himself, to some extent, to the war effort or the oncoming war effort. So it could have been that easy. He had that choice. Kind of like Steve. Steve could have said no. And it ends up becoming very, very much a parable between those two. And it, that ended up. It haunted me, not necessarily in a good way, not necessarily in a bad way, depending on the day, but thinking that this is all a series of choices, small choices that could have changed the course of the Marvel Universe. One small change, and who knows? Right. Uh, but, of course, we get to the big day. Everybody's let in, and it's actually, within Adventures of Captain America, Cynthia Glass, who, when we first meet her, she's in an old lady outfit, and once they're in the, the lab out of the curio shop, she unveils that she's this beautiful brunette. Now, in the comics, again, that was X-13 or eventually Agent 13, but there was there's no other place where this character fits, where this X-13 fits. The movie took an interesting pose because the old lady up top just was the old lady up top with the machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> but um, there was there was no effort to blend her with Haley Atwell's Peggy Carter. Thankfully. Yeah, it, it probably was a good move because, I mean, really, in comics... The old lady mask take off to reveal a beautiful woman works really, really well. Yeah. In live action, grounded, believable storytelling that, you know, for all its fantasy, Captain America, the first Avenger was really going for, it would not have worked as well. It's kind of like whenever the really hot chick reaches over for her neck and yanks up and it's, it's Burt Ward underneath as Robin. <laughs> you know, it just, you're, doesn't, not, you're not Jill St. John. <laughs> doesn't quite work. 
No. Or he's a man, man. You know, he probably <laughs> punches the hot waitress and when she falls, she's this really ugly dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's, it's where I kind of settled. And again, John and I had a lot of conversations about the X-13 slash Agent 13 situation in this. And this is the best I can find as an explanation of who this person is. And it also forms that linchpin of exactly how Kruger got in, even as Clemson. Because she was in charge of vetting everybody who's entering the lab. And he comes in at the last minute, and she lets him in. Why? You'll see. And then everything kind of goes down as expected. Now, there's been different depictions, different additions to the process, but it's actually very similar across the board. We're looking at small tweaks. Um, In the first version, it was an injection. When it was retold in Tales of Suspense, it was just drink the serum, because injections were forbidden. Um, then they added Vita rays, and eventually they said, no, all three of these happen. You take an injection, you drink a catalyst, and then the Vita rays help prolong this, get it, uh, get it moving along. Which is, which is a, an easy way to reconcile conflicting stories is say, no, 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 all of them happen. You just saw, you know, one part of it in this story, one part of it in that story, and one mm-hmm. part of it over here. So yeah, he, he, he took an injection, he drank a potion, and he had these, you know, undescribed energy rays being blasted into his body that you'll never see again. <laughs> right. Well, I think you do, but it's, it's never as important as it is here. And so test is done. That's when Kruger makes his move after this skinny scrawny guy becomes a super soldier. He realizes that, <laughs> that, that, that in order to do in order to have at all fulfill his mission, he's got to stop this from happening again. Mm-hmm. Rushes in shoots Erskine. And here's where things get a little bit hazy. So Erskine's dead. Steve decides, no, it's my job to stop him now that I'm buff and everything. And taller. And yeah, and taller. <laughs> I feel taller. And now Haley, I was looking down at me is now looking at my boobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, does because it says at one point, you know, Heinz Kruger's not watching where he's going and runs into an electrode. Others say Steve throws him into it. Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting take that that they wrestled and Steve actually intentionally threw him into a thing. And that was in Cats America 109 that that was mm-hmm. changed. And I, I chalk it up to an unreliable narrator. I mean, from the time Heinz rushes in to the time everything, you know, the, everything's settling and Heinz is sizzling on the ground. Everything moves fast. And, you know, in times of, of distress, in times of emergency, you don't remember all the details, especially if there's a trauma. Steve just came out of a, a really huge ordeal with the super soldier serum. Physically changed, mentally changed. Um, and then all of this happens so fast. I kind of buy into an unreliable narrator that something happened. I'm not quite sure if I threw him or if he ran into it. Um, he's just working on instinct now. With a body that he's not familiar with to begin with, right. which they showed wonderfully in the movie, it, to, to, to dramatic and comedic effect. Um, so, I, and I, and I don't really have a problem with either one. Uh, mm-hmm. There, there's a tendency in superhero fiction to declare that your hero can't ever kill anybody. I kind of, I kind of call um, uh, bull feces with that for uh, Captain America because why is he becoming Captain America to go out and kill Nazis? Which not it, it, he not for the purpose of killing Nazis, but that's what he's going to do to stop the bullying. If you're going to go to war, somebody's bound to get shot, and it may come down to you versus them. I don't see Cap as being bloodthirsty or wanting to do it, but he knows his duty by the time right. he hits the battlefield. And you know, you've got to separate sometimes Captain America in the war versus Captain America post uh, Avengers. Captain America post Avengers, the world is totally different, and. 
the perspective of who Captain America is has changed. He's no longer just the super soldier. He's in a group of superheroes who have redefined that ideal. So he really so, is the first of many. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so if you tell me Captain America shoots some Nazis in the war, okay, that's war. Indiana Jones did it. I'm fine with that. Uh, Captain America is teaming up with the Avengers against some low-level threat, and Captain America decides to do a shield slice and rip his head off. Well, okay. Different. Yeah. However, if you tell me Captain America decapitates a vampire with a shield, I'm good with that too because you're dealing with supernatural. But right. But but the context determines the appropriate behavior. Yeah. Well, and then you do. Yeah. I mean, the idea of characters not killing kind of came about trying to look at an audience that that was perceived to be kids, and at at, at if you look at the 40s and 50s, probably was. As you get further down the line, the audience gets older and older, and you can see the comics change to gear towards that. So the no-killing thing with certain characters makes sense to me at an era, but but it's not. It, I think if it's not a hard and fast ultimate absolute rule. No, especially with Cap, and especially with um, the kinds of stories being told in serial fiction where you need to be able to reuse characters mm-hmm. versus cinema where you don't. Yeah. And I think if anybody thinks, well, Captain America fought in World War II and didn't kill a single soul, that's a bit naive. That's like thinking your your grandfather, your great-grandfather who went to war or that, you know, shop teacher who went to Vietnam didn't see some sort of combat and is not carrying that around on top of that. Never forget that. I mean, yes, our soldiers go over there. What they do over there, they take home as well. And I don't think Cap is completely haunted by it, but I don't think he's forgotten it. It's not something he takes joy in, but it was his duty. So Heinz Kruger is dead, whether accidentally by Cap's hand or directly by Cap's hand. Um, and sadly, so is his mentor and the person who got him into all of this, Professor Erskine. Mm-hmm. And it creates a bigger conundrum. Now we have a super soldier that cannot be replicated, per se. And, and Tommy Lee Jones has now? a big problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he's not – it doesn't take the path that the movie does from here. He's not stuck on the USO tour. Uh, but to give a little closure, Major Kerfoot that we mentioned earlier, who was embedded, who was somebody who greeted Kruger, um, had made a journal with a rudimentary version of this formula. And his his handlers come in in Marvel's Project Number 5, take what he's got, and he's like, when am I going home? Oh, right now. And they snap his neck. That diary comes back way later. And Brubaker making that part of the tapestry – um, when it was something that kind of came out of nowhere down the line with Captain America was beautiful. Interestingly enough, there must have been other, at least partial documentations of the super soldier process because you get other characters like Masterman hmm. and, you know, other invader characters. And, and the more I've read of Captain America's storyline, the more I realize that for all of the mythos level statement that He's the only one and there was no way to replicate it. There have been lots of replications. Yes, there have. We mentioned protocyte earlier. Um, but the, the main theme between all of those, the replications are something went wrong. Something is not as uh, fastidious in that person or in the formula used. Or at the very it's least, like- it was done on the wrong kind of person. Exactly. But it's kind of like KFC. You can make fried chicken, but you don't have those original herbs and recipes. There's something a little bit different. And it, it makes a big difference. It does. So it may be the person. It may be. It, and, and it kind of, to me, always felt like, I don't want to ascribe something bigger to it, but it felt like this was Steve's destiny. This was what Steve was meant to do. Because otherwise, if this hadn't happened, Steve would probably be an artist. He would probably die very young. 
because he was not healthy. He was working in conditions. Um, we see him at one point before this. He's painting things in subways that's killing his asthma. Uh, Steve probably would have worked himself to the bone and probably would have passed away in his late 20s, maybe. Probably would have. If you made it that far. Probably, yeah, because when you're sick and weak, you're sick and weak. And we in here in 2015, there is a lot that we can do to prolong and improve the lifespan of people who 100 years ago would have died very young. Mm-hmm. And add to that that there was a – that you know, hindsight being what it is, the war did come. A lot of medical facilities, a lot of medical uh, doctors were overseas at the time. Steve probably wouldn't have had access to the, the greatest of treatment, even beyond the, the, the uh, technological advances at the time. Right. So to me, it always felt like this was where Steve was meant to go. And, I, and of course, fiction being what it is, of course that is. This was a character that was built to do that. But it's been added to that you see why. You see, of course, we have the how, but we've never seen the alternative because there is no alternative for Steve, at least in terms of the fictional world of the Marvel Universe. So moving forward, he, 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 how do we get to the costume? Well, after this, they kind of decide we need to train him now. We've got at least one super soldier. We need to use him. Um, Steve gets a chance real quick to say goodbye to Arnie Roth, who has enlisted as well. Arnie puts together... Steve's much bigger now. Later down the road, he sees Captain America. He realizes Steve became Captain America. Um, just to mention Arnie Roth, not only is it a good friend for Steve, because you're having this goodbye moment where nothing is going to be the same. And these two friends aren't going to see each other for decades till after the war, till uh, I think it's the late 70s, maybe early 80s. And when you meet Arnie Roth again, you learn a lot more about him. He was a character that broke a mold. For one thing, he's one of the first openly gay characters in comics. Um, Arnie would later make the mistake of telling somebody he knows who Captain America is, and that person would kidnap Arnie's boyfriend, Michael, and Cap would help him get it back. Uh, you also was have that, the idea that, that – The fact that he was gay, was that told in the 80s issues of Cap? Yep. Wow. And, it, and not a big deal was made about it. He just comes to Cap and says, Michael's been kidnapped. And Cap's like, I will help you. I was just watching – this is off topic, but I was just watching Friday the 13th, uh, the first one, with Lily last night. And I was talking to her about how a lot of those things were often done in code in literature that, you know, it was more than 10 or 15 years old. And because there is one character, one of the female characters in that movie that we're pretty sure was a lesbian. Hmm. Just, uh, her name is Brenda and she's, you know, um, the only girl who, <laughs> who's not either in bed or surviving the movie. Um, but, but yeah, we, we, we're pretty sure that there's just a little bit of a hint there given that she's a lesbian. So the idea that in the eighties, when it would not have been okay in a lot of, well, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like, Oh, look at us. This is a gay character. It was just, this is my boyfriend, Michael. Help me get him back. Yeah. And, and it, it flew under the radar. I don't think it was ever. You know, they didn't do it with jazz hands. Hey, look at this. Right. But it wasn't – you didn't have to read too deeply. Not at all by any stretch. <laughs> um, so he says goodbye and then he's off to train. And there's a couple different ways that this goes down. Most of the time it's a fighting montage of training. Um, Adventures of Captain America was the one that I liked where the reason they hid Steve – and it was the first cog that made sense to me in, in this whole thing at Camp Lehigh is following Erskine's death. The Nazi assassins were killing off people involved with Project Rebirth. Um, even safe houses were no longer safe. So the, the idea was let's hide Steve in plain sight at Camp Lehigh. It doesn't quite jive up with, with overall continuity, but the idea that these assassinations were occurring made sense to me. So Steve is kind of shut off and trained. And we're talking about intensive day-to-day -day training. You're not just training a soldier. You're training a super soldier. So we know he learns judo. We know that much. 
uh, among other things. Um, but along the way, Steve has an ancestor's journal, which was from the 1700s, from the World War uh, – World War, sorry, from the Revolutionary War. And this is where we get into he, uh, Captain America, Sentinels of Liberty. Yeah, it was – the journal itself was introduced in, in Kirby's run. Nothing was really done with that other than establishing that this family and Roger's family have some sort of adversarial relationship. Um, when you go into Sentinel of Liberty, though, Mark Waid expands this, where this ancestor was a blacksmith, um, ended up getting involved in the war effort, and went to spy on this family called the Tories, who are, in fact, Tories, which means they opposed the Revolutionary War. It was a political party of the day. Yeah. Um, Steve is infiltrating the party, and they have some nephew walking around in this proto-Captain America costume. Of course, it would have just been a, co- a colonial America. Another Kirby idea. Uh, but he's supposed to be a buffoon. They're making fun of him. The whole, like, the whole song Yankee Doodle Dandy is a big insult, if you didn't know. Um, Steve, pro, uh, uh, Revolutionary War Steve takes that costume to kind of get into some of the spy meetings. And this includes the shield, includes the red, white, and blue, and a big Revolutionary War hat. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's supposed to be. Mark Wade justifies it. And well, yeah, and also Jack Kirby is a bit bombastic. And this was, I forgot, this was done in his big old bicentennial battles special, wasn't it? It There was a pinup of the costume, yeah. And then Mark Wade actually wrote the story behind that. That's great. Okay. And this guy, they came to a duel and Tori ends up trying to shoot. It goes off the shield and Tori dies. And Steve is looked at, that Steve is looked at as a hero. And Steve presents this to General Phillips, just as a, hey, this is something interesting. They're having a conversation. This is my lineage. And Phillips is like, you know, I have an idea. Now, I do want to touch on something a bit of a no prize, because this creates a conflict for Irish immigrant Sarah and Joseph. And the only thing I've come up with is, it's pretty easy. This was another leg of the Rogers family. Somebody who had, because it's only described as an ancestor, nothing direct. So this leg of the Rogers family came over to the U.S. way earlier um, where Steve's leg happened to stay in Ireland. That's that's my no prize. So it's Not more a of a great-great-great-great-great-uncle than a great-great-great-great-grandfather. Correct. Okay. I, now, I can simultaneously, we've got this idea in Chester Phillips' head, but it's also spurned on by something bad happening on the war front. The Nazis have their own symbol, the Red Skull. And this guy is just tearing stuff up. Now, the Red Skull was, he was a bad guy to begin with. But the, the origin is probably one of my favorite origins in comics. He was working as a bellboy at a hotel where Hitler was staying. Uh, they're trying to groom officers, and Hitler makes this bet that he can turn the bellboy into a better Nazi than anybody else can. And sure as hell does, doesn't he? <laughs> Gives him a skull, and then he comes so bad that even Hitler's like, I'm scared of this guy. Okay, can I, can I, can I, can I tell a very, very brief side note before we get too far in the Red Skull's origin? Um, oh, yeah, that's all the origin, yeah. So, bellboy. You know they have all those buttons on their on their uniform, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what the Spanish word for bellboy is? No. Botones, which means buttons. <laughs> buttons. So they call the bellboy, hey, buttons, come here. Which I thought was was was, was humorous. The, the Red Skull is also known as buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Cap totally needs to call him that at some point. <laughs> yep. He, he was Johann Schmidt, now he's buttons. Yep. <laughs> That should be a pet name. Okay. Um, now, the beginning of Red Skull's career and the timing of it is a little bit interesting because they establish in Captain America 255 that one of the inspirations of Project Rebirth and the Super Soldier program was the Red Skull. Mm-hmm. So, 
I don't know if it's, it feels to me like sometimes it's suggested. Well, it's, it's blatantly stated in Captain America comics number one, but we've already talked about the differences between, uh, timely and Marvel continuity. Um, that cat red skull came about later, but there are other times where it feels like the red skull was a force to be reckoned with that Captain America was brought about to combat. Yes and no. I, I mean, my reading of it is yes, the skull was out there. Uh, it wasn't what inspired project rebirth per se. Uh, more that the Nazis were working towards an Ubermensch. Um, but once they had the single super soldier, they had a symbol to combat that, that, and basically offset that particular Nazi symbol. And that's basically, that's, that's kind of the gist I got that what the Red Skull was playing out as Operation Rebirth was nearing. It just kind of, it played into what they were already doing and then kind of solidified it once they only had Steve. I like. The Red Skull's role in World War II that we see through the eyes of Marvel continuity retcons and through the eyes of the film. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at Captain America comics, and by that I mean the name of the series, Captain America comics, the one that was published in the timely era of the 1940s, um, Red Skull <laughs> is a very different sort of character. And well, especially in the first appearance, it's not even the Red Skull. It's been retcon, but he—he's he, very kooky. He's he—he he has he always has these comparatively very small-minded aspirations of <laughs> you know robbing banks and stealing money and killing people because um, they're they're American officials and, and generals and such. Um, but yeah. The the Red Skull is one of those ideas that's so creepy in his first story that it glommed onto the reader's consciousness. And then whenever Stan Lee was, and Jack Kirby were reviving things in the 60s, after a little bit of time, they decided, okay, it's time to give Captain America a big bad. And they brought back the Red Skull. Well, this, the Red Skull in the original Timely era was one of the only, in fact, it may be the only villain that repeat that came back. If you look at some of the, the villains you think of of Captain America, even in World War II, Baron Zemo, retcon. Um, uh, trying to think of his name. He was in, uh, who, they, they, dang it. <laughs> he was in, uh, Age of Ultron at the very beginning. Oh. Hi, um, hi, yeah, hi, uh, Von Strucker. Von Strucker, retcon. Yes, that's a 60s character. Uh, Masterman, we mentioned earlier, yeah. was a, was a 70s Invaders character. So you have all these big bads of Captain America's World War II era that are all, created and told in later stories, not in the day. Now, there is one other bad guy that I know had at least two appearances, probably only two appearances. This is the Black Talon. Oh, yeah. Do you know the Black Talon? A little bit, yeah. Um, should I tell the Black Talon story briefly? Because it's 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 crazy. Yeah, okay. let's, let's drop him. <laughs> so you have this artist who, kind of like Dr. Uh, Stephen Strange, spectacular artist. And through the course of, I forget exactly what happened, um, he ends up losing his hand or losing the, the, his hand gets injured or something. And they, they amputate his hand, but the doctors say we can replace it with another hand. But the only one we have available is of this one prisoner who's going to be executed tomorrow, but he's a black man and he's violent. <laughs> and so they take off the hand of the man who's going to die and tie it onto this artist who, due to the blood in the crazy black man's hand, um, it creeps into his body and makes him go crazy. And so the black talent, who's a white guy with a black hand, is now evil, which is just the exact kind of totally 
off-color, really not very okay at all kind of story that you get when you read 1940s comics. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's, on, <laughs> that's that's on the lighter. And remember, in the 1940s, racism was magic. Right, right. Oh, that's bad. Um, well, you can see why they didn't bring back the Black Talon in the 60s when the Civil Rights Movement was in a big upswing and Marvel was sympathetic to that. So. Right. So I, I've read um, some 30 issues of Captain America comics, and so I'm, I'm working my way through it. But if there are any other characters that get repeated, they're not in the first, you know, three years of the character. No, and, and with Captain America comics during that era, for the most part, it was Monster of the Week or Nazi of the Week. It's almost like a horror genre comic that mm-hmm. uses the Patriot character as a, as a plot device. Very, very mixed. <laughs> that, that's why I'm not very enamored with that era. No. Like, I like the retcon versions like the Invaders. Well, yeah, it makes sense to have Namor and Human Torch team up. Well, that didn't really happen. I mean, you have All Winners, but All Winners Comics, which is another title, but the team up wasn't what you would think. Right. If you're, if you're, and I, and by the way, if you haven't read the Invaders, that's some great stuff on Marvel Unlimited, by the way. Yeah, I, like I said, about 15 or 20 issues into it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Justice Society of America with our friends who podcast about that is similar where the later, more modern incarnations of those world war two stories are much more palatable than the actual world war two stories. Although I'm a big fan of early green lantern and early flash. True. I agree with that. I love Jay Garrick. Um, so now Philip sees this, sees a chance to make the symbol and makes what we see is retconned as a proto costume. Basic same same costume. You've got your chainmail, uh, blue along the chest, star stripes along the abdomen. Um, the main difference is the shield, and there's a reason for the shield's change that we're going to get to both in story and out. And then instead of having that hood, he has a skull cap, or in some cases, it's drawn as a helmet. And Captain America does a few early adventures that are not showed in shown in the Captain America comics number one. Um, he goes out. Uh, Get some high-ranking colonels. Uh, Marvel superheroes number three. He's seen on camera by Dominic Fortune taking down some Nazi saboteurs. Just basic, generic little adventures, and these are all supposed to happen within March 1941. So the cover date, which makes perfect sense to me. Just the chronology that was built within the official index takes both the original publication date and the cover date and makes them make sense. So think about this. We this is all this is all happened to Steve in about six months or less. It's, 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 it's a lot to happen in your life. I do want to mention one other costume difference, at mm-hmm. least in the timely era. His costume did not have stripes on the back. Good point. The stripes yes. were just a it's frontal piece that, that stopped in the seam under his arms. So any frontal view of cap, you had stripes and the back view of caps was solid blue, except for the big white star. Yeah. But of course they lay later uh, in the, and when they brought him back, they redesigned the costume, to make the stripes go all the way around. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to mention, and this is kind of the tricky part with the Cynthia Glass thing, um, it, where you place it is kind of, it could be off. But the main thing that I took away from it, and that's confirmed by Su- uh, Super Soldier, which was post-death return. So Bucky was still Cap at that time, and Steve occupied a different area. Uh, Cynthia Glass was revealed to be a Nazi infiltrator. Um, Adventures of Captain America is a great story, but the main thing I took away was Cynthia Glass changed her mind. Because the way she felt about Steve and in the end sacrificed herself. How she did that to me wasn't important. What hit me about Cynthia Glass was not only was she there at the beginning, not only was she responsible for Erskine, um, not only did she change, she kind of becomes Steve's Vesper Lind. Where Steve had feelings for her, she's revealed to be a spy, but redeems herself. And I mean, from the, well, the original book Casino Royale, as well as the movie, 
they vary a little bit, but that same idea, that same progression where Steve suddenly not only loses somebody and takes that emotional hit, um, which kind of prepares him for what he's going to have to face in war, but kind of has to harden himself up to that and realize, okay, I can't trust everybody. And I can see Steve being that sort of wide-eyed 19-year-old kid who would have that sort of naivete. But eventually he has his the bitch is dead moment. He has that bit. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I feel Cynthia Glass, just as a character, just as they basic beats, logically makes sense. It not only fills in that, that role in Captain America Comics number one, but it fills in a certain a certain character moment for Steve where he's starting to become more soldier, less Steve that we knew. And more soldier, more symbol. And then, of course, he's, he starts seeing death on the battlefield. The main thing is, uh, in this this era between the between the scenes of Cap Comics number one, is Steve finds his way to Wakanda. Which brings in the shield. Mm-hmm. The, the, and it's interesting they made him making a story out of what really was just an artistic change. Well, the artistic change, the, the reason for the shield change, because it changed from Cap Comics number one to Cap Comics number two to the circular disc. Reason for that is there was an Archie character named the Shield, and Cap's original Shield looked like his chest piece, and it did. It was legitimate. It was an accident, but it legitimately looked like it. And Simon and Kirby are like, "Okay, we'll change it. What do we change it to?" They would think about taking trash can lids as shields as kids playing with snowballs. They took that disc shape. That's how it became the round shield. So when, as kids, you picked up that old metal trash can lid and used it as a Captain America shield, you were actually taking a part in the inspiration of the actual shield. And it, it's interesting because the shield is a character that I knew from impact comics. I never, mm-hmm. I, ne- I, I didn't know until years later that he had his origins in the early days of Archie predating Captain America in pep comics. I think it was pep comics, right? Pep comics. Yep. That you had this character called the shield who, like you said, his frontispiece of his costume looks like the shield that Cap is carrying in issue number one. And as was very common in, in 1940s, lawsuits were threatened. This happened all the time between care, between comics uh, companies. The- well, especially with the, with the, what well, DC was, and as much as I love DC, I have to kind of admit their flaws. DC was very trigger happy with lawsuit threats. Well, yeah, well, yeah. And, and the, probably one of the most famous ones is that Fawcett threatened, uh, uh mm-hmm. sued DC over, uh, Superman's, uh, no, no, DC sued was- Fawcett yeah. over Superman's and, and Captain Marvel's similarities. Um, so now Pep Comics is threatening to sue DC. I'm oh, sorry, threatening to sue Timely. And Timely's just like, okay, sorry, we'll change it. Yep. Our bad. Yeah, it didn't mean anything. Although I'll confess, I think that the change was, I, I love Captain America's shield, but jumping ahead a little, how, how we got the shield is Cap ended up in Wakanda. And this is before T'Challa took, uh, his role as, of course, the king of and regent of Wakanda. So it's his father or his grandfather. It would probably have to be his grandfather because this is decades before T'Challa took yeah. over. Cap ends up there, not on purpose, but to, but the, the regent, and I'm, I forgot to write down his name, I apologize, says, okay, I can't let you go. Our land is too valuable. Basically takes Cap and says, give me a reason to trust you. Here's, here's this material that is so valuable that people will come, people will destroy us to get it. Give me a reason to trust you. And Cap actually hands the guy his shield, which was a phenomenal scene. And later, years down the road, uh, Cap finds out that T'Challa knows about it because Cap is testifying on defense of T'Challa and cannot mention that because he's honor bound. And Cap's like, Does, I didn't know you knew. He's like, yes, and, and that's what makes us brothers. Um, just an awesome scene. It's Captain. It's Black Panther number thirty. 
um, from what what was actually seemed like a really good version of the series. Yeah, the um, the, the whole notion of Captain America's shield and what it's composed of is an often referenced <laughs> secret before this moment. In fact, I remember, I remember one particular thought balloon from Cap is that he will take the secret of his shield to his grave. Well, Cap doesn't necessarily know the secret. Oh, he knows that part. He knows where the vibranium comes from, but the actual composition was a complete screw up. That's why there's only one. Basically, they get this chunk of vibranium to a metallurgist who's just trying to work with new metals, create better tanks, so on and so forth. And the guy literally falls asleep while meeting, uh, melting some metals together. And comes up with this unique blend that he can't for the life of him ever repeat. So they end up with this disc that is about, it's two and a half feet in diameter and weighs 12 pounds. And the curvature, everything about it is so, so harmonious that Captain America basically uses it like a boomerang. Um, it works on vibrations to some extent. It's just basically unbreakable. Now, is there adamantium involved? Because I was on the, I was under the impression that there was adamantium in the shield, which is why it was indestructible. And then the vibranium thing was why it was able to be such a great shield. That I wasn't clear on because the guy that invented that did invent the blend that is adamantium. So there's some uh, some of the foundational stuff for adamantium in the shield, but it's not straight up adamantium. Okay. And in 303, they do say that adamantium is weaker than the shield. Yeah. Because it's just, this is a, a, a kismet. This just happens to form this perfect disc of unbreakable metal. Okay. So they, then they're like, we can't do it again. Great. Way to go. Thanks, dude. <laughs> when the film, it's pre- uh, I think it's pretty much straight up vibranium, which was a really great tease in the original uh, movie of Catch America because we didn't know yet anything about a Black Panther film. No. And and the idea that they would use vibranium just seems to say, hey, hey, uh, Black Panther, Wakanda. Yeah. It's coming. Wait for it. Right. <laughs> uh, but he also receives the updated costume with the hood and... It was just, it was just a streamlined version. There's never been a really good, here's why we're going to do this. It's just like, here, I'm Frank and Delano Roosevelt. Here's the new costume. And all it really did was, you know, the hood and, and in the retcon versions, it did, it did add the stripes along the, the entire abdomen and back, but it becomes the more familiar, you know, Captain America costume, the one you see on, on all the products. Now, do you go with Roosevelt knowing that Cap is Steve or not knowing that Cap is Steve? I've always thought he did know. Why would the president of the United States not know who Captain America is? I agree. I agree. It just is one of those differences between um, Timely and Marvel because George uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, has no clue who Captain America is in the Golden Age. But if you want some uh, – just the relationship between Cap and, and Frank FDR that played out within Sentinel of Liberty, which was a, a 12-issue sem- series. Um, it was an anthology. Most of it was written by Mark Wade, but there's a scene where Cap – has this moment of doubt. He's like, I'm not sure if I'm up to this. And FDR, who was very secretive about the fact that he was in a wheelchair or in leg braces, wheels out from behind the, uh, from the desk and says, you know what? Look, this is what I hide. And damn, if that didn't get me choked up. (laughs) Right. And just the idea that, that Steve has those doubts, because why would he not think about the mission? Cause now they've got a a pretty clear idea on what Captain America is and what he's going to do. And, that's intimidating. You're going to represent an entire country in what is likely to be an oncoming global war. And you're 19 or maybe 20 years old. That's a mind blower. I wasn't even sure I could handle the work, you know, the real world workforce at 20 years old. Right. But now he's to represent the entire country in a, a, a war for the freedom of the world. Mm-hmm. 
You can't understate that. Um, and in kind of the same ideas, now that we have this fully formed Captain America of uh, hiding in plain sight, they position Steve at Camp Lehigh. And I've not been able to figure out exactly where Lehigh is, is comic book wise located. Well, I do know that it is located near every single type of major land formation and, um, <laughs> and national landmark. Yes. Because yes, it is. near Camp Lehigh is a very common location for Captain America comic stories. No matter where he goes. <laughs> oh, look, here's Mount Rushmore. Near Camp Lehigh. The- <laughs> they ran. They yeah. changed clothes and ran to Mount Rushmore. <sighs> well, speaking of they, that's where we come across James Buchanan Barnes, a.k.a. Bucky. And, you know, as you see in the comic, the story goes that Bucky discovered Steve changing into Captain America, and Steve made him his partner. Remember when I said it was damn dirty lies? Here's why. Brubaker, Ed Brubaker, would come back later and say, no, no, here's what really happened. Bucky was orphaned. His father was a serviceman um, who passed away in a training accident. Bucky was kind of kept in the charge of the the camp, more or less. He became the quote-unquote camp mascot, but really what he was doing is just getting supplies. You want something, he'll get it for you, you pay for it, that whole thing. And they decide, you know what, for reasons of PR, if Captain America had a young partner... He would get the buy-in of the kids, and they could, of course, sell war bonds or other things. Bucky was actually recruited and sent to train extensively and intensively with the British SAS, one of the most elite fighting forces on the planet. And then he was presented with the Bucky costume and became Cap's partner. So Bucky wasn't just a kid who fell into something. He was chosen. Interesting. And they would have to be of an age, too, wouldn't they? Bucky, maybe not. Bucky was kind of, for all intents and purposes, kind of off the record is the way I read into it. That he was 16 or 17. He wasn't far, maybe just on the sh- just shy of 18 and, and he crossed over to that birthday, if I remember correctly. Okay. But he wasn't officially enlisted. But but to have to have the mature to have the emotional maturity that they need for this kind of role, um, he'd have to he be pretty mature, 16, 17. I was thinking if Cap is if Cap is 18 to 20, that's pretty young. That is pretty damn young, yeah. and and Bucky would probably need to be pretty close to that just to do what they need him to do. Well, the the way Brubaker sells that is with his his father being a serviceman and going off and doing various things, he would take care of his little sister. He so he kind of had to grow up fast. So there was a certain inert or innate uh, maturity to him for his age. Okay, and and just just his being off the record, kind of being this non-entity kind of made him an ideal choice as well as his mindset maybe he's just like 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 some of the bigger child stars in hollywood in the last few years just a really a remarkable amount of maturity then despite a young age yeah in in the 40s of course and really pretty much all of cap's history until brew baker bucky was always drawn very young looking part mm-hmm. of that my theory Part of that is that the 1940s cultural mindset viewed teenagers very differently to how we view them today. And so yes. if you want to draw someone who's like a 16-year-old character, you're going to draw them like they look 10. Because to the 40s mindset, teenagers are still kids. Which is why Peter Parker was such a sort of dramatic change to be Spider-Man as a kid in high school. It's one of the reasons why Johnny Storm, even in the 60s, often behaves so childishly because of that mindset of teenagers as kids. Um, so you have this cherubic 
looking Bucky Barnes on the cover of Captain America Comics number one. He could literally <laughs> be eight years old or 11 years old looking at you from that cover. Um, but through the course of the series, it's obvious that the guy, the character is in his teens at, you know, uh, whether 13 or 16 or something. And then you move into the later interpretation by Ed Brubaker. He's got to be at least 16 and maybe closer to 18. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also the mindset of kids, as you mentioned, is different. The work laws were different. Kids were kids were an asset. Children were put to work to help support families like we saw with Steve. Um, that was just how it was. You're you're you know, if you're a five member family, two parents, three kids, likely if, if the kid's able to walk, they're put to work in factories, what have you. And of course, that mindset has changed drastically throughout the 20th century and the, into the 21st. So for Bucky to have been eight or nine years old at that time, you wouldn't have thought much about, you know, Cap putting this kid in mortal danger at every turn. <laughs> now, as you get into the 21st century, you kind of want some justification. And Bucky being trained, being, uh, you know, formidable in his own right, I like a lot better. I It sets better with right. me. I like the idea, too. Um, it puts some of his scraps with Toro from Young Allies in a bit of a different light. But, you know. Yes. <laughs> um yeah, Bucky's an interesting character because he's always been secondary to Cap for most of history. And yet just in the last 10 years, he has really become his own character. But there have been a lot of Buckys. I mean, the the, the idea of Bucky, um, it's like every time there's a Captain America, there has to be a Bucky. Even, and that Bucky can change a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways. Well, you had Rick, Rick Jones. You had the Heroes Reborn Bucky. Um, you even had Jack Monroe for a bit before he took on a different idea. Yeah. And Rick Jones is weird because even though it seemed from Avengers number four, it just seemed like a given he was going to be Bucky. It wasn't until the cap 110s that he actually became Bucky. And then he was only Bucky for like three issues before he went to go to the Captain Marvel comic. It was really, really yep, odd. It was a blip. Yeah. <laughs> and it never, it never stopped being awkward. Right. <laughs> never. <laughs> But that's how we arrive at sort of the the status quo of Captain America. That's his journey from this scrawny kid to a symbol of a nation. And at the core of that was Steve Rogers. Where do you think Steve Rogers really hit that transition from Steve Rogers to Captain America? I think it probably happened once he actually started going into action. Um, you have – you probably have a lot of um, stardust – in his eyes, I guess maybe a word whenever he's left behind the life that he knew and he's in the brownstone, he's in the, he's in the test and he's in the training previous to the actual super soldier event. Um, and then once he gets this new body, he goes into training, but it's probably a kid learning how to be something and he hasn't really well, changed you- himself until he actually starts doing what Captain America is expected to do with, with the, I think some of the darkness that goes with that. Not darkness, What's maybe so much in Captain America, but just like being exposed to that in the world and having to gain a new maturity as a result. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that that's why Cynthia Glass, that's why I put it in my head canon and that that's the moment when he realizes I can't be the Steve Rogers that started this journey. I have to be something more to paraphrase arrow. <laughs> this is the exact same thing. <laughs> um, but from here, I mean, you know, the adventures begin and I don't know. It's just this journey is a fascinating one from an eight page story. So many writers and artists have have just built so much around it. I mean, you have people who like Brubaker who are expanding Erskine, who was, you know, just a one off. Um, 
you have the idea of, of Bucky being something more than just a kid who discovered it. And, you know, you have the Red Skull who who's happening simultaneously on a, a very starkly comparative journey. Just this kid who stumbles into something more for his country. And that's why those two are so perfectly diametrically opposed that they're they're so similar in origin points, starting points. Just their endpoints really do dictate that kind of they sell to me how how badly this could have gone. Yeah, because you if, say a Gilmore Hodge had been right because you have Erskine who's looking for a noble person to take on this role, and you have Hitler who's like I can make that guy more evil, and mm-hmm. Erskine ends up finding somebody much more noble and humble than he ever expected, and Hitler ends up finding somebody much more evil than he would have expected because Buttons was pretty okay with torturing small creatures and yes he was <laughs> and i'm sorry but from now on his name is buttons <laughs> his name buttons <laughs> well to me when i when i think about the journey it begins at the lower east side and and the more i thought about the more i you know again i understood steve i understood who captain america is how he sees the world was based on those formative years seeing all these different races cultures um, mindsets and, and financial situations in one small area really informs why he is who he is, why he's ideal to be Captain America, because he has that accepting uh, view and this very strict right and wrong. You don't bash somebody because they're different from you. You bash somebody because of how they are acting, what their actions are, rather than where they came from. Or I shouldn't say bash, but you you know, if they're Opposed to you in ideology, that's one thing. If they're holding a, a gun to your head because of that ideology, that's the time to fight. Right. Feeling differently about the world and viewing the world differently, that's what makes humanity interesting. Fighting each other because of those different views, that's what kind of makes humanity terrible sometimes. Um, but so we have this, we have this, this hero who's ready to stand up and fight for the American ideal. And he does that. He does that with his partner Bucky and he does that with the help of other heroes of the day. Um, you have the, <laughs> the invaders with Namor, with the Human Torch and Toro, with Union Jack and Spitfire and all these other characters that come along in the course of his history. Uh, and that takes us far into the war of Captain America just, you know, fighting for the cause of the Allies and for the cause of the United States. And eventually something happens that takes him out of the running. And that's not really an event that we're going to talk about today, but Captain America's war career was cut short. He did not get to see the victory that he fought so hard for, almost like Moses. Or Roosevelt. Or or Roosevelt himself, yes, who fought so hard for something. And Roosevelt spent decades fighting for America with his New Deal and trying to find a way to get a crippled nation back on track. Um, And neither one of them got to see the other side of that fight. So we, we are doing this episode, the Captain America Spectacular, as a memorial of Captain America's 75th anniversary, a celebration is a better word than memorial. Celebration. A remembrance, <laughs> not, not, not a headstone, um, for Captain America's 75 year history. But Dave and I have in, have it in our minds that we might want to revisit this character from time to time in the, uh, the Dave's Daredevil podcast feed. So be on the lookout for the future installments of cat, you know, future Captain America spectaculars that might come down where we look at what happened after 
Steve Rogers fell into the ocean um, and and was revived again decades later. Because those are those are some things that we definitely want to talk about. Just this has already gone two hours and we don't want to you know kill you with podcasts today. No, but this is this is very much only the beginning uh, of this these spectacular sharing the feed. And we definitely want these to be deluxe episodes. We don't know how regular that's going to be. We're aiming for about quarterly, but it would yeah definitely share the feed. And there's a lot of cap that I want to talk about. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, well, it feels weird to not wrap it up and say justice may be blind, but it, it can see in the dark. But I don't know. Keep your shields held high. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're doing World War Two, we could definitely say keep them flying. Keep them flying. Uh, but John, real quick, I just want to thank you for joining me. This was something that, you know, uh, trying to develop, I couldn't, I couldn't quite get around some of the ins and outs of this and definitely having you kind of help me get this together, get my head wrapped around how to approach this has been invaluable. So this is very much, very much a, a, a partnership. So I appreciate well, that. Well, I'm looking forward to more. Captain America is one of those characters that I, I've, I've long been interested in. He's, he's never been someone I considered a top interest. But the more I've read about him, the more I've just really grown to love the character. And so I'm looking forward to, uh, now that I've read a whole lot of Cap over the last year, uh, not only reading more, but going back and revisiting some of those stories and talking about them here with you. So, so yeah, future Captain America spectaculars are in the offing. And um, until next time. Keep them flying high. Thanks for listening, everyone. His name buttons. <laughs> <laughs> The preceding program has been a production of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the show on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know... You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Do you shop at Amazon.com? Of course you do. Well, next time you choose to shop at Amazon, why not use the link on 2TrueFreaks.com? Using this link when you shop helps the network keep producing the best podcasts on the planet. You shop just like normal and 2TrueFreaks will get a bounty if you buy something. Help pay our bills when you buy cool stuff. And now for the legal. All characters discussed are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group, all rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the images or references to the characters herein. Music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>